Hello, I'm Nicole Abadie and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Today I'm delighted to welcome Irish writer Nisha Dolan, whose brilliant debut novel, Exciting Times, was published here by Hachette in April. Nisha was born in Dublin. She's lived all over the world, including in Hong Kong, where this novel is set. And she was living in London, but right now is in Dublin with her family. Nisha studied English at Trinity College, Dublin, and then she did a master's in Victorian literature at Oxford. Her novel that we're going to be talking about today exciting times, rocketed into the Sunday Times bestseller list in its first week year of UK publication, and it was optioned for TV just before its US release. It has been warmly recommended by Sebastian Barry and Hilary Mantel, amongst others, and has appeared very high up on many of the what to read in summer lists in the UK and the US. Nisha, welcome to Books, Books, Books. Thank you for having me. Could you start by telling us what Exciting Times is about? Yeah, it's about a young Irish woman who moves to Hong Kong to teach English to children and finds herself in two different relationships. The first one with a male British banker named Julian, who's um, emotionally detached and determined to see that as a mark of superiority. And then later, uh, Hong Konger called Edith, who's a bit more earnest and a lot more fun. Could you read an extract, uh, Nation? I think you were going to start with the opening chapter of the book. Yeah. July 2016. My banker friend Julian first took me for lunch in July, the month I arrived in Hong Kong. I'd forgotten which exit of the station we were meeting at, but he called me saying he saw me outside Kiwa Bakery and to wait there. It was humid. Briefcase bearers clocked out of turnstiles like breeding genets. The tannoy blazed out first Cantonese, then Mandarin, and finally a British woman saying, please mind the gap. Through the concourse and up the escalators, we talked about how crowded Hong Kong was. Julian said London was calmer, and I said Dublin was too. At the restaurant, he put his phone face down on the table. So I did the same, as if for me too, this represented a professional sacrifice. Mindful he'd be paying, I asked if he'd like water. But while I was asking, he took the jug and poured. Work's busy, he said. I barely know what the hell I'm doing. Bankers often said that. The less knowledge they professed, the more they knew, and the higher their salary. I asked where he'd lived before Hong Kong, and he said he'd read history at Oxford. People who'd gone to Oxford would tell you so, even when it wasn't the question. Then, like everyone, he'd gone to the city. Which city, I said. Julian assessed where the woman made jokes, decided we did, and laughed. I said I didn't know where I'd end up. He asked how old I was. I said I'd just turned 22, and he told me I was a baby and I'd figure it out. We ate our salads, and he asked if I'd dated in Hong Kong yet. I said not really, feeling yet to contradictory things as an adverb and were more judicious choices he could have made. In Ireland, I said, you didn't really date. You hooked up, and after a while you came to an understanding. Julian said, so you're saying it's like London? I don't know, I said. I've never been. You've never been to London? No, ever. 
never, I said, pausing long enough to satisfy him that I tried to change this fact about my personal history upon his second query and was very sorry I'd failed. Ava, he said, that's incredible. Why? It's such a short flight from Dublin. I was disappointed in me too. He'd never been to Ireland, but it would have been redundant to tell him it was also a short flight that way. We discussed headlines. He'd read in the FT that the Osha Raminbi was down against the dollar. The one piece of news I could offer was that a tropical storm was coming. Yes, he said, near and I, and the typhoon the week after. We agreed it was an exciting time to be alive. Both storms came. Unrelatedly, we kept getting lunch. I'm glad we're friends, he'd say, and far be it from me to correct a Balliol man. I felt spending time with him would make me smarter, or would at least prepare me to talk about currencies and indices with the serious people I would encounter in the course of adult life. We got on well. I enjoyed his money, and he enjoyed how easily impressed I was by it. Nisha, thank you. Nisha, mm. you've said that Ava is from Ireland. She's from Dublin. What brings her to Hong Kong? Why is she there? She's quite fussy about it, I think. What she says is mostly stuff about why she doesn't want to be in Dublin. So um, the constraints of abortion being illegal, although it's not fully accessible in Hong Kong anyway, financially and so forth, but she doesn't really get into that. And she describes a vague sense of alienation and I suppose of a lack of economic possibility to make a nice life for herself there too but she doesn't really give constructive reasons for having wanted to come there I think it's very much set in what she's up to when she's there as opposed to being hugely introspective about what brought her there if that makes sense. Where is she living when we first met her? In a flat share um, of sorts she's rented out an Airbnb room but um, it's not a permanent setup for her. And that's not a very happy environment for her, is it? She's not crazy about her flatmates. No, although I, I don't think it's entirely clear whether she dislikes them as people or just dislikes the experience of living with people. And it's a pretty grungy apartment. She talks about cockroaches and it being a small room, so it's not a great setup, is it? Yeah, but I think it's hard to disentangle how much of that is that it's particularly miserable and how much of it is just um, her headspace causing her to exaggerate various details. And Nisha, she's got a job. What does she do? Where is she working? She teaches English as a second language at a school in Hong Hong Kong Island, um, mostly grammar classes because she lacks And is that to adults or to children? To children. Hong Kong locals? Yeah. This is a book, as you have said, which is really almost entirely about relationships. So let's jump straight in to discuss the first one that you mentioned between Ava and Julian, the British male. You've read that opening scene where she says she's um, she's having lunch with him. Can you tell us a little bit about Julian and about his background? Yeah, so Julian is privately educated and an Oxford man, but from the details in the book, more of the upper middle class variety than someone with a huge trust fund. So his father is a university lecturer 
and all the rest of it. And he seems mostly to surround himself with people like that who've gone into banking and stayed there pretty frictionlessly. Um, in terms of his personality, he seems quite bald and unadorned in how he sees the world, which is cynical, but not hugely performatively so. He's quite terse in how he talks. To other people and in how he considers himself from what we see in the novel anyway there are maybe hints at more of an inner life but I don't know if the narrator is hugely interested in or able to access that. And for the first two months that we see them together we see Ava visiting him at his apartment they are having dinner together they're drinking together they're talking together and then they start to have sex and within a month she moves in. So let's talk a little bit about their relationship. What is Julian like with Ava? How does he treat her? I think he works very much off what she's overtly said she's interested in and has signalled that she wants, which is an unfortunate approach that has bad consequences when she's incredibly poor at communicating either of those things. So um, what she's about these ignored is that she wants a detached relationship and indeed rather than ever stating that she might have feelings for him she interrogates him pretty much unprompted as to whether he has feelings for her and then doesn't communicate about how his answer makes her feel so it seems to me that just from my interpretation of the novel, which is only as valid as anyone else's, that he works very much off the overt signs of how she would like to be treated. So, you know, we can form different theories on how much of a responsibility someone has to dig beyond that, especially given their broader knowledge of how men and women generally relate to one another. But and that's what he's trying to do, I think. Yeah, and she acknowledges that conflict within herself, doesn't she? She says at one stage, detachment is something Julian knows I both wanted and didn't want from him. So I was wondering, what does she want? Does she even know what she wants from this relationship? Yeah, I think she's uncertain as to how much she's specifically attached to him as an individual and how much she's attached to the optics of heteronormativity. So there's a lot of stuff about how she likes being seen with this tall man in an elevator. And I think because we're in her head, there is no cosy definitive answer to that, which I think is as it should be, because what we know of her background is that she hasn't had the ability to overtly and thoroughly come to terms with her sexuality and her place in the world yet so it wouldn't make sense for her to be able to coherently narrate that to us as it's happening. One thing that he's very firm about is making sure that everybody knows that he's not her boyfriend they're not having a relationship he's not her boyfriend and he says that over and over when he takes her to meet his father he says you're not to tell him that we're in a relationship when he introduces her to his awful friends who we'll come to in a moment he wants all of them to know they're not in a relationship how does she feel about that so I think there are a few layers to it the first one being in her own head where she 
shows varying degrees of awareness and varying desires to feel one way while actually feeling another that because she's navigating them herself it's hard to know quite what side she actually falls on and then on top of that there's the extra layer of variously signaling and not signaling that she likes or doesn't like that so I think she's very invested in appearing to be the sort of person who's much happier in I suppose a situationship than a relationship and certainly the first portion of the novel is a failed and muddied attempt to try to either embrace that fully or come to terms with it, neither of which is successful in because it's very hard for her, I think. We've mentioned that she meets some of Julian's friends. Can you tell us what, what they're like? Let's talk about the male friends first of all. What, what are the men like that he's friendly with? Yeah, they share a lot of his insular, cosseted, somewhat ignorant expat headspace. There are these people who appear to have lived long-term in Hong Kong, picked up no Cantonese, made few, if any, local friends, and mostly keep themselves to themselves. And a lot of those commonalities are mutually facilitated because they're all together and um, it, it just seems normal to all of them to continue that way because they see each other doing it. So they've all exported a particular privileged masculinity that to some extent is shared by the women that they mingle with too. It's not that um, the, the women in the circle don't also have this extremely chauvinistic Anglophone attitude. So one of them, tell us about Victoria, who's the girlfriend of the, one of them, whose name is spelt Ralph, but of course pronounced Rafe. What's Victoria yes. like? Um, she has a lot of hair and has all the attendant qualities with that she sets a great deal of store by her handbags and I I think a lot of the one-on-one conversations that she has with the narrator Ava are whilst she's drunk and in that way form quite a contrast to the sober almost Mrs Dalloway hostess energy that she gives off One of the things that she talks to Ava, the narrator, about after she's had a few drinks is whether Ava, who she knows is having some sort of a relationship with Julian, whether Ava thinks that Julian would want to sleep with her. How does Ava respond to that question? Overtly, she shrugs and gives as non-committal answers as she can, I think. But then internally, she wants to pull Victoria's hair out. We which see. I think is a very apt um, an instance of how her mind works. And a, and a very reasonable response, I think. And there's a funny bit there about hair extensions. She thinks that Victoria's wearing hair extensions. So she wonders if she pulls her hair, what would happen if she grabs the extension? And what will happen if she grabs the real hair? Which is something I've yet to test in real life. So. <laughs> Maybe one of the victories in my own life needs to just test my patience a little bit so we can see. Nisha, it's clear that um, Ava feels very insecure in this relationship. There's one scene where we see her just asking him a whole lot of questions. Do you love me? What are we? Am I interesting? How does he respond when she asks these questions? Does he take them seriously? Does he make a joke of it? How does he respond? He seems to try to 
bring it back to their non-committal dynamic, which is not unreasonable, I think, when she's so aggressively and continuously signaled that that's the dynamic that she wants to. So I, I think the picture we get of Julian is very much someone who doesn't easily read the emotions of other people and the picture of the broader form of masculinity that he occupies is that it's also seen as weak to attempt to. So um, I, I think he just autopilots with those responses. One thing that the narrator says a couple of times, she says it once to her brother, she says it once to us, is that she doesn't like herself when she's with Julian or she doesn't like who she is when she's with Julian. Why not? Who is she? Who does she think she is when she's with Julian? This person who self-protectively attempts to detach from her environment and from other people and paradoxically ends up thinking about those things a lot more than if she'd simply honestly owned her feelings in the first place. Like we get paragraphs and paragraphs of her trying to cut off the hydra heads of her many feelings and as a result it just grows and grows. So I think by that point in the novel she's reckoning with the fact that to be a happier and generous person you sometimes have to make yourself vulnerable by way of letting other people hurt you. She says at one point that sleeping with him is a form of self-harm, so she acknowledges that. And I, I see that you've described her somewhere as actively self-destructive. Why does she do it? I think there are a few reasons of varying levels of structural import. There's no denying that individually she's a very emotionally damaged person in ways that perhaps not everyone in her circumstances would respond to, especially given that she's certainly relatively privileged in Hong Kong and anyone able to leave Ireland at all is also relatively privileged because they have a minimum of money for a flight. So it's not that her life has just forced her to be that way. There's clearly something individual going on there, but there is that tendency towards emotional repression that I think informs everything about her character because it makes her seek for other ways to be so that she can not be the original way. And it's not even clear that those ways are better. I think they're just different a lot of the time. Something that's important to Ava is who has the power in a relationship. So in this relationship with Julian, who do you think has the power there? Or is it a joint thing? I think it really fluctuates and that's probably why I can get so much material out of it because if it were one-sided then you'd only really have to show it once and then anything else would be just old rope. So the fact that compared to him, so it's a low bar, she is slightly better at openly discussing and airing grievances and so forth means that their conversations do tend to be framed around what she wants to talk about, even though he then has the power to shut them down with ironic retorts of the sort that she, for various reasons, feels obliged to buy into. And then because they're in Hong Kong as well, there are a lot of forms of power that they share, whiteness and being Anglophones being the most obvious ones. But then internally in his posh apartment that their collective power allows them to be in, she is still a woman who makes a lot less money than he does. So I think they're continually navigating 
that element of how much they have in common and how much they don't. And then obviously they're individuals too. And there are just things like the fact that Ava seems to have an easier time making swift emotional connections with other people than he does. Like the fact that when he leaves, she's able to strike up pretty much this instant bond with Edith. Whereas it's not clear that there's anyone Julian genuinely likes and is comfortable spending lots of time around in Hong Kong. Even his father, whom they get along fairly well, he gets along fairly well with in their own way. It doesn't seem very often for whatever reason. So I think if you're more able to happily be around other people than someone, that does give you an element of power in your relationship with the original person because you just have more other options. So I think there's a lot going on there. Mm. We see her throughout the book as being quite anti-capitalist and she professes to be very proud of the fact that she's socialist, she's anti-capitalist. She says that she really hates the British class system. But how, do we, how does she feel about the fact that Julian is wealthy? We see him in a beautiful apartment. He's an investment banker. He's very senior. He buys her expensive gifts. How does she deal with the fact that he has money? Does that make her feel uncomfortable? Is she okay with it? She does seem to really like money and to be drawn towards it in a way that is completely her own responsibility because Hong Kong has plenty of other people who are not investment bankers that she could choose instead to spend time with, not least her flatmates and her fellow TEFL teachers, and that's even still within the Anglophone bubble. So there is what I think she presents to us as a certain fascination of repulsion she wants to get up close to this thing that she intensely hates but then it's like girl do you really need to live with someone to have your fascination of repulsion so I think she just also straightforwardly fantasizes as well maybe for the fairly straightforward reason that she hasn't had it and it's nice <laughs> and I think sometimes it really is as simple as that but in terms of her stated politics I think that's as much a texture of life thing as it is something that she's then meant to be a walking polemic for because people have to have political beliefs of some sort and it seems to be mean most plausible that a 22 year old Irish person would have socialist leanings regardless of what they do about it I don't think you can have a coherent analysis informed by lived experience going up in Ireland and not think that things need radical change because quite clearly right-wing politics haven't delivered that. That's not to say that I don't know any young people in Ireland who aren't socialists, but it's something that they'd feel an active burden to defend a lot of the time. Nisha, one thing that we see Ava doing a lot of is texting. She does a lot of texting. We'll, We'll come to Edith shortly, but talking with Julian She sends him a lot of actual texts, but I think it's very entertaining that she also sends him a lot of draft texts, ones that she writes out, goes to a lot of trouble composing and writing out, and she doesn't send them. What do we learn about her from those texts that she doesn't send? Yeah, we, I suppose we straightforwardly see what she would say if she weren't so afraid of putting that up for other people's examination and comment but it's still mediated because she's still communicating what was in her head in a textual form 
that even though she knows that she's not going to send it, it is communicative in some way. So it it's almost a cry for help in that sense. It's using the same narrative function that the rest of the book comes to us to, but it's overtly different and I suppose low committal enough that she's able to present it as a separate space. So I think in that way, it functions as a place for her to air her vulnerabilities without feeling that it's held everything else she says to a certain level of scrutiny because it's in this very circumscribed format. Let's move then to her second significant relationship. Julian goes off to London. He tells her that he's going to be gone for a couple of months. She's pretty upset about that. But within a fairly short time, she meets Edith. Tell us about Edith. Who is she and what's she like? Yeah, Edith is brisk, enthusiastic, definitely not sentimental, but a little bit more avowed in what she pursues and likes, just more willing to own things. I think something that the three have in common is bluntness, but Ava's and Julian's comes to us in mordant understatement whereas Edith is positively as well as negatively blunt so for instance she's a big fan of Instagram and rather than trying to downplay this as oh I know it's stupid she just goes for it and when prompted justifies that she thinks it's okay to have frivolous hobbies so I I think she's a lot more honest with herself as a person and by extension is much more honest with those around her not in an uncomplicated way because there are elements of the reality of her life that still force her to contort herself to fit different scenarios so most obviously the fact that she's not out as a lesbian to her parents but those factors are externally rather than internally driven you get less of a sense that she's continually trying to be too cool to feel things maybe because she has more actual problems and so hasn't manufactured this way of being in the world for herself. Something that's really interesting I think is that she's different from Julian in the obvious ways she's the same age as so something we've got to talk about is that Ava's 22 Julian's 28 so he's a little bit older than her that feeds into the power dynamic between them as well. Edith is the same age and she's a lawyer. She's a Hong Kong local. Her father is Chinese origin and her mother's from Singapore, but she's grown up in Hong Kong. But significantly, like Julian, she's gone to boarding school in England and he went to Oxford. She's gone to Cambridge. She's now come back. She's a lawyer working in a law firm or a trainee lawyer. So she actually has a very similar privileged background to Julian's, doesn't she? And that's what do you think that says about Ava, that she is once again attracted to somebody with that, you know, she calls it posh, that posh privileged background? Yeah. So first of all, it is reflective of Ava's lack of active interpersonal skills because Edith is handed to her initially as an acquaintance through um, the mutual <laughs> I suppose for enemyship that they have with Victoria, one of um, Julian's posh Anglophone friends. So, the one with the hair extensions. Yeah, so Ava hasn't taken a huge step forward in her social outreach and making friends with Edith initially. 
then in terms of the continuing attraction, definitely Edith's culture capital plays into it. Ava loves being with someone who takes her to plays and who can make wry literary references and that feeling of being subsumed in an aesthetic of importance um, certainly plays into that attraction in a way that Julian doesn't really furnish for her because when Ava references his cultural capital it's usually in terms of feeling excluded from it how authentic she's being in that might be questionable but that's certainly her professed stance in that so her relationship with Edith definitely lets her feel more implicated in that form of privilege. But it, yeah, I think it does show that her willingness or ability to grow is incredibly incremental, which is it, probably true to people in the real world. You don't overnight stop valuing the things that you valued a chapter ago, I guess. Let's talk a little bit about the relationship between Edith and Ava and how it differs. How does Edith treat Ava compared to how Julian treated her? Yeah, so the three have in common an analytical approach to relationships. They're all fond of overtly stating in quite clear terms what they're thinking. But Edith angle on this is informed by a broader empathy so she doesn't just attend to the literal wording of what Ava has requested or expressed she is a bigger picture thinker in that sense and I think it comes out with a lot of the more insightful lines about Ava and she shows that ability to have complex understandings of people more broadly in her life she talks a lot about her mother and how she's aware of her mother's many forms of prejudice and the ways in which her mother mistreats her but still loves her. And I think that object lesson as much as how she overtly treats Ava is a lot of what fuels Ava's intense respect for Edith and desire to be able to relate to people as she does, seeing all of them and reconciling it not needing to compartmentalize or to partially shut herself down from them to deal with them seemed to me also that she's a lot more honest than julian is she's happy to say right from the start i like going on dates with you i like you i want to be your girlfriend how does ava respond to that sort of candor compared to the game playing that she's been engaging in with julian yeah, she seems to be initially startled, but then to like it. And I think for her, it's difficult fully to separate from the experience of dating a woman versus a man. There are a few points in the novel where she reflects that had Edith been less overt, she just wouldn't have been able to say at all whether it was just a friendship. And indeed, there are moments where in hindsight, one can say that Edith was quite clearly flirting with her, whether that is her interpretation or whether where she's not sure whether it should be. So I think in that way, their dynamic doesn't take place in a vacuum and neither does Ava's with Julian. One is an extremely socially coded form of relationship where they don't even have to 
fuel an ardent passion for each other to continue pursuing it. And the other is one where they can quite clearly be obsessed with each other and still have a lot of trouble making it happen because the social coding is so muddied with the ways that female friends express platonic affection for each other. You have said, Aunt Nisha, that Edith is your favourite character. Why is that? I think she comes at a point where she's really necessary in the novel. Had she been at the start this insightful, vigorous person, when we're meeting everything else, I don't think it would have had the same oomph, but things have really settled. And then here she is offering an entirely new emotional dynamic. So some of it is just that I like the role that her character plays in the book. I think as well of the three, she has the firmest grip on reality and that might be because she's in her home city, but certainly her analyses of the other characters are the ones that I feel to be most accurate. And of course, that's the challenge about writing a novel inside the head of a 22 year old and I wasn't much older than her when I started the book so I'm not being condescending when I say it's an extremely introspective headspace so I think it is good to have someone also 22 but just a little bit more cop on who um, is better able to understand what's going on. Aisha let's talk then about the significance of this being a relationship between two queer people. Something that you said that I thought was really lovely was I was able to get a book out because previous generations of LGBT authors had already convinced publishers that people wanted to read our stories. And I was wondering, who are some of the LGBT writers who have influenced you in your writing? Yeah, the very first one that I wasn't aware of through this lens was Oscar Wilde. I loved his children's stories, later his plays, later Dorian Gray. And in a way... I think it's lovely that I didn't come to him knowing that I was queer and wanting to feel heard. He was just a great Irish writer. And I later came to understand why his work resonated so strongly with me, but it definitely did. Then later, when I was looking for depictions of queer women, especially, I started reading loads of Emma Donoghue and Sarah Waters. And I think the historical permission that they both gave to go back through areas where you weren't represented. And I feel they're more accessible to me now with that in mind, that it's as much my text as anyone else's. One of the things that I think you do so well in this book is you show the impact of society's response to same-sex couples on individual people, on Ava and on Edith and on their relationship. So you give examples of small things. When Ava Googles how to flirt with women, the answer assumes that the person who's doing the research is male, not female. But there are much bigger things, obviously, as well. And one reason that Ava gives for why she didn't initially come out to Edith or why she's nervous to come out to anybody is that she fears that people will stop being her friend. And I wondered, is that a real fear that you have as a queer person, that people will like you less if you come out as queer? Is it a rational response by Ava to think, gosh, I'm, I'm too scared to come out, I don't want people to know I'm gay because then they might like me less? Is that a rational response? Is there a risk of that, do you think? 
Yeah, because the most overt forms of discrimination against queer people are expressions of a broader social attitude or else they wouldn't happen. And it's a lot more difficult to preemptively assess whether those sort of forms of distrust and misunderstanding will happen until they do and then it's too late you've been hurt and I often think that I just don't want to know what straight people think about me because I don't need to for the purpose of having shallow interactions with them and if I'm not going to have deep ones then we don't need to go into it why do I want to hear something unpleasant about myself you know so it's not really as simple as deciding to trust or not trust people it's an incredibly layered thing that depends on the function that they're going to have in your life there's another fear that Ava has and that is that as a teacher of young children that in Hong Kong that parents wouldn't be happy with her teaching their children if they knew that she was gay is that a realistic fear of Ava's or is that is that a silly fear it's realistic I was wary of portraying it as a uniquely Hong Kong attitude because many Irish parents would have that fear as well. I wondered and, about that, yeah. Yeah, and also as a 22-year-old who's never taught in Ireland, Ava wouldn't be well-placed to make that sort of cultural assessment even if we you know, referenced data on it and so forth. So I think as well in a especially commercially driven role like that where there isn't a huge amount of rights legislation and so forth to fall back on those sort of pressures do become more apparent she says ava says something very poignant she says a couple of very poignant things about this she says that she and edith are too self-conscious to kiss in public because we worried people would notice and then she says later on i wanted people to know we were together but only the ones who wouldn't hurt us for it are there people who will hurt an openly queer couple, do you think? Again, is that a realistic fear of Ava's? Yeah, definitely. You know, all over the world, fairly recently, there was that incident of a lesbian couple being physically assaulted on a London bus. Um, and, I, it, you know, you give anecdotes like that but then you're like why am I even giving an anecdote it just happens all the time and quite clearly if an anecdote were going to make it stop it would have by now so it's just a fact of existing in public space and it's not that everyone would do that it's that you get so exhausted by the constant calculation of whether someone will a calculation that may or may not be correct because there's no level of proportion taking that will ever fully shield you but even if it did, the having to do the precaution taking is an invisible burden for sure. Let's talk now about another concern in the novel, and that's the, the idea of British colonialism and how that intersects with issues concerning race. Both Ava's country, Ireland, and Edith's, Hong Kong, have suffered under British rule. So that's something that they have in common and there's some joke at some points between them about, you know, whose people are the most oppressed. One of Edith's friends, Tony, asks Ava at one point if it makes her feel weird that she's doing the neo-colonial T-E-F-L thing, that's teaching English as a foreign language. How does Ava feel about what she's doing? 
teaching English as a foreign language in Hong Kong to Hong Kong children? Yeah, seemingly uncomfortable, not uncomfortable enough to leave the job, say, but <laughs> uncomfortable enough to um, sort of lackadaisically raise it with her Hong Kong boss, which I think is a difficult interaction when he's one of the people harmed by that broader racism and she isn't. But it is very much a reality of the technical industry, certainly in Hong Kong and more broadly. There was recently in Hong Kong a document leaked with various schools, mostly run by Hong Kongers themselves, um, stating requirements for teachers and being very specific about race, in some cases hair colour. So it, it is just a fact in writing a novel about a technical teacher that if you don't mention that kind of thing, you're misrepresenting the reality of it. And one thing that she... Ava seems to really sort of buck up against is this concept that she's been told to teach these children that speaking English in the way that Hong Kong people speak English, which may be a little bit different in the way that speaking English, the way Irish people speak it may be a bit different, that any way is wrong other than speaking English the way the British speak it. And it, it seemed to me that that was something that Ava does have a problem with and that that, that is an instance of the, the colonialism that she finds she finds a difficult aspect of what she's doing. Yeah, and she's in an interesting position in that respect because her having that job with no apparent qualification beyond being from a white Anglophone country and getting paid more than locals is a way in which she hugely benefits from that dynamic. And it's probably stupid to try to weigh up these things right like that would be an incredibly um superficial treatment of race and colonialism but definitely the fact that she has to alter her English in an environment where more worthy she is nonetheless paid to teach it um, would indicate that she's far more beneficiary of that dynamic than someone who's at all marginalized by it but then the fact that even the minor deviations from the standard English that she's being paid to teach are unacceptable is indicative of how prescriptive structure it is. Nisha, something that you've talked about a few times I've seen is this issue about how likeable the characters are. Now, from my point of view, I have to say that I found two out of the three very likeable. I liked Ava very much and I liked Edith very much. Julian, not so much. But I gather that not all critics have the same views that I do and that some of them have said these are not very likeable characters, these are not very relatable characters. And you've made what seems to me a very strong point of saying that you thought very carefully about whether it was necessary to make characters likeable or relatable and you decided that that wasn't necessary at all. Why not? Largely because... I've never needed that to enjoy books. And I think you have to write the book that you want to read because if you try to write the book that someone else wants to, you'll invariably get it wrong because we don't perfectly understand the interiors of other people and that's the bit that they use to consume books. But also you'll be engaged in something that you don't yourself find rewarding. To me, it's far more fun to deal with the facets of people that make them difficult to like in fictional form and if in order to do that 
I have to sacrifice their then being liked, then that's a price that I'm really willing to pay. So it wasn't that at every stage of the character development, I went, how do I actively make people <laughs> feel like a, a level of odium towards this person? It's more, I was just thinking about what would it be interesting for them to do and to make good decisions along that front you have to shelve other things because you can't think about it all at once so often likable fell at the altar of interesting in that sense. Aisha finally one of the things you talk about in interviews is that you have relatively recently been diagnosed with autism as an adult and you've said that you're very happy to talk about that you make a really lovely point you say that because both LGBT and disabled women are underrepresented in the arts. And it's important for them to see that people, LGBT people, people with autism can succeed in the way that you are doing spectacularly. I wondered then what impact the fact of being diagnosed with autism or the actual being autistic has had on your writing. Um. Definitely how I frame it publicly and then how I talk about and think about it. Because the thing is, we need broader understanding in our culture of the many barriers to diagnosis. And it affects all sorts of marginalised groups. So women, working class people, black people, people of colour, just anyone who's not the stereotype of what we think of when we think of autism. It's always going to be harder for them to get diagnosed. So I'm hesitant to frame it around a diagnosis as being necessary because that then continues to privilege those voices. But for myself, because we're still at a level of public understanding where if you're not exactly like your man from the Big Bang Theory, people are sceptical that you're autistic. I feel that my having a diagnosis is helpful for persuading those people, perhaps. And having that sense that I'm able to talk about it then means that I can think about it more too because if you're constantly inhibiting your public expression that does feed into what you think about yourself privately that's why being out is so important to me too because brains don't just work on what you tell them privately they work on what you show yourself to be important about yourself so you can think all you want, but I know I'm autistic and queer and that's enough for me. But if your actual presence in the world is running completely contrary to that, then it's never going to feed as richly as it can into your writing or your self-protection in general, I think. Nisha, thank you so very much for talking with me today on Books, Books, Books. It's been absolutely wonderful to talk to you. I loved your book so much. I expect that it will be the spectacular success here in Australia that it already has been in its first four to five weeks in the US and UK. I wish you the very best of luck with the TV series. I see that you're going to be the executive producer, which yeah, will be a pretty amazing experience. So thank you so very much and the very best of luck with the promotion of the book. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabbotty.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abbotty, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. 
Since it's a new podcast, it would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon.